Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. everyone. This is Ryan Tripp. I'm here on New Books in History, a channel on the New Books Network. We're here today to discuss Professor Alan Gillet's new book, Walter Raleigh, Architect of Empire. Professor Gillet is the Lyndon B. Johnson Chair of U.S. History at Texas Christian University. Welcome to the show, Professor Gillet. Oh, thank you. I'm very happy to be here. So can you talk a little bit about your the cover for this uh, book published uh, by uh, Basic Books, this the cover selection? Sure. Um, I've got two, I think, fascinating pictures of Raleigh, first on the cover and then right inside the book. And what I really like about the first one is it's from a private collection. And so I've never even seen it before. And it's an almost exact copy of one that is in the National Gallery of Art in London, except the colors are different, and the person, the painter, and this is this is in 1593, he made the face different. He made the face younger. <laughs> I was quite intrigued by that. Raleigh looks almost uh, cherubic, uh, a little angel-like, uh, and it shows his fascinating clothing. He's got a feather in his hat, and then you go inside the book. Uh, and you find this very different picture of him where he's much older. He's kind of grizzled. He's got uh, a sword in one side and a cane in the other because he, is just, he has this painted uh, shortly after he was the hero of the Battle of Cadiz in Spain. And uh, in the top left corner, they put a picture of Cadiz. So it shows you, you know, what he's been through, what he's done, and how he suffered for it. And I love that picture, too, because it, it's uh, an unusual picture of Raleigh, and it shows him sort of as the wizened old man. So what prompted you to study the life of Sir Walter Raleigh? Well, I, I came across him decades ago, and I've, I've always been interested in colonialism, and I was studying the 16th century. Um, and although it wasn't my main area of study, I was actually focusing on the 18th and 17th. And I kept coming across how people described him in such different fashion, both in his own time and also through the centuries by historians. And I was fascinated that people thought he was a dilettante on the one hand or very learned on the other, that he was someone to be feared or that he was much admired and loved. And I thought, if I could rectify this, if I could figure out why people describe him so differently through the centuries, maybe I could understand the origins of colonialism better for England. And the reason I say that is because he was the founder of the first permanent attempt to colonize by the English in what's now the United States. 
but he's also plays the lead role at the same time in Ireland and in South America. So you have the person who's really at the, the foundation of the English Empire, and he's viewed in so many different ways. And I, and I thought, you know, somehow by de- deconstructing him, I'll understand England and colonialism better. And I think that's what I've done, hopefully. <laughs> <laughs> so on that note, how did previous Norman and Anglo-Norman conquests in Europe, as well as Spanish imperial ambitions in the Americas, shape Raleigh's conceptions of plantations and colonies? Ah, yeah. What, one of the things that I found was that, you know, historians often believe the English just blundered into colonialism without really thinking about it, without having any experience of it or with it. And colonialism was on their lips for years before they colonized. And for one thing, Raleigh and many of the elite, they looked back in history at the Norman invasion which was 500 years before in 1066, and where the Normans conquer England and colonize. You know, they take over, I forget the exact figure, it's about 95% of the land of England. And in looking back in Raleigh's time, they thought this was a great thing, that the Normans had colonized England and they had brought civility, civilization, law, and so on. So. Their experience of colonization was, you know what? It can be good for a country to be colonized. So that's one thing. And then connected to that is at the end of the 12th century, the Anglo-Normans, the Normans who had moved to England, went about and colonized Ireland. And so they, they uh, moved, many of them moved to Ireland. And they add it to the crown's throne. So ever since the 1170s, the crown of England claimed Ireland as their own. So they had another place that they colonized. And this was a very real experience for them. It went on for hundreds of years. Uh, They colonized basically an area around Dublin and built the famous Pale, a series of ditches, uh, where we get... the the expression for people who live beyond the pale, they're beyond civilization. So the English have this experience there. And for hundreds of years, they're trying to assimilate Ireland into their empire. And to a large degree, they, they had difficulty through hundreds of years. And it's really not until Elizabeth's reign, hundreds of years later, that they sort of put the screws in and say, this time we're going to do it. We're going to colonize Ireland uh, and bring it fully into the English Empire. And Raleigh's a part of that as well. And then there's, of course, the Spanish example, because they're looking at what Spain's doing. At the same exact time, Spain's already been in the Americas for you know, three quarters of a century. And it's a, an astonishing success in terms of the wealth that they're able to wrest out of Spain. With the conquest of Mexico, they've already moved into Peru. Uh, there are many parts of the Caribbean. They're already in Florida. 
And so the English look at Spain and they think one is, boy, we'd like to get wealthy like they did. And second, we have to get wealthy like they did. Because Spain and England were at loggerheads with one another. Uh, in Raleigh's time, Spain is going to try to conquer England several times, including famously with the Armada in 1588. But also on, on other occasions, too, they'll send armadas against England. And so the English, like Raleigh, are thinking, we have to go into America. We have to find a way to get richer to counter Spain's power. Uh, you know, and, and England and France and the Netherlands are all going to actually create an alliance to try to stop Spain from conquering Europe itself. So, you know, England is being pushed by fear of Spain out to try and find wealth and America sitting there. So uh, can you elaborate further on English colonization of Ireland and also plans for a Catholic colony in America um, by touching briefly on uh, uh, Raleigh, Humphrey Gilbert's, and John Dee's roles in this colonization process? And then if also you can uh, briefly address the uh, Desmond Wars. Yeah, the um, John Dee, Humphrey Gilbert, who's Sir Walter Raleigh's elder half-brother um, by a about 15 to 18 years. And Raleigh, they're all interested in Ireland uh, and colonizing there, and they're all interested in America. Dee was the Queen's mathematician, often an advisor. Uh, Gilbert, Raleigh's older brother, was a military hero of the First Desmond War. And in fact, that gives him a lot of cachet at court and plays a role in opening doors for his younger brother, Sir Walt, uh, Walter at court, and all three of them share interest in alchemy, in the laboratory, in chemistry, uh, in a mystical religious philosophy called Hermeticism. They consult with one another about overseas expansion. Uh, John Dee himself is England's foremost geographer at the time. He was trained on the continent uh, in geography. So they consult him for maps. They actually consult him for omens on when went to sail. So they have a lot of interaction and a lot of connections in London. And as far as the Desmond Wars are concerned, the Desmonds were Anglo-Normans. They are among the highest elite in Ireland. So... They are English in background. They become Irish, so to speak. But, you know, again, they're, they're uh, blending English and Irish culture together. And they are going to resist the changes Queen Elizabeth tries to make in Ireland uh, to the taxation system, for instance, and to try to bring the earls into line beneath her. And that's going to spark a series of wars, and in Southern Ireland, they're called the Desmond Wars. There's two of them. And as I mentioned, Gilbert becomes a great hero in the first one. And in the second one, Raleigh is stationed in Ireland for a few years. And it's there that he learns um, or becomes intimately involved in Irish affairs. He becomes an expert on Ireland. And he also learns a whole lot about the landscape, which makes him uh, – 
a, a person who can lead the way in colonizing. And as far as the Catholics are concerned, in England, because of the Reformation, there is a big and growing divide between Catholics and Protestants. And what takes place is a series of fines and other kinds of political restrictions placed upon Catholics and practicing their religion. And the idea arose of using Catholics as settlers to move to America. And so Raleigh and Gilbert uh, in particular are going to be involved in uh, trying to figure out ways to send Catholics to America as colonists and also to draw on Catholics for investments. And the Queen goes along with all of this because these are English citizens, but they're looked upon as troublemakers at home, so why not send them out to colonize where they can there practice their religion in uh, these col overseas colonies, but they won't be creating religious problems at home. Uh, and ultimately, what's fascinating is that with the colonization of Ireland, which is Catholic at this time, um, Raleigh and others are going to send English Catholics to Ireland as well. It's not just to America. Uh, so uh, the Catholic population plays a great role in overseas expansion. And eventually, of course, you have a, a whole colony, Maryland, that's founded to be a refuge for Catholics. So what about uh, the idea of English colonization in America as well as the quote-unquote right to eliminate the natives? What was the role of George Peckham in all of this, as well as his 1584 True Report? Ah, George Peckham was a, an associate of Humphrey Gilbert and is involved with Gilbert in trying to establish Catholic colonies. In fact, there were several that were attempted. We know very little about them, um, but they all uh, are, are not formed. And Peckham uh, is, is in England. He uh, was high up in the English chain. He was sheriff of Nottingham, for instance, and uh, much admired at court. Humphrey Gilbert goes off to America to check out the place and to assert um, the Queen's sovereignty in America and to build colonies there. He dies along the way, uh, which is an important part of the story here, but I want to stick with Peckham. Because when Peckham finds out that Gilbert's dead, and Gilbert had exclusive right to colonize in America, he's the only one allowed. So Peckham sort of picks up his patent and quickly decides to try to settle a colony in America uh, as granted by the land granted by uh, Humphrey Gilbert. And so what he does is he writes the first published account that's an attempt to recruit English to go to America. And he's looking for investors as well as colonists. Um, we call it the True Report in 1584. Uh, it's fascinating in several ways. One is he gets a lot of the leading men of England to write poems to convince the English to go to America. And that itself is fascinating. Even people like Sir Francis Drake, who you don't expect to be writing poetry or writing poems, or, uh, George Granville, he gets uh, thus merchants, uh, poets, 
He gets just other leading men and a lot of people who are already involved in the sea. And the gist of the poems is, okay, fellow countrymen, get off your duffs and go to America. It's where the wealth is. It's where it's a rising place. And this land is barren. Uh, in the 17th, uh, excuse me, the 16th century, by the end of the century, the English think they live in this barren land. They call it often their frozen island. They think they're overpopulated, even though they only have about three and a quarter million people. So the poets are pushing people to go. And the, po- the people who wrote the poems, I argue, don't even know what's in Peckham's book because he has to get this out really quickly before Gilbert's patent expires and the queen decides to grant it to somebody else. And so he writes the true report, and it's fascinating because he's telling English about the native peoples there. And he's arguing for, one, for the queen's right to colonize this land vis-a-vis the Spanish, but also he's arguing against Indian rights to their own land. And that's what's fascinating about this. He sort of lays out these arguments that, for instance, um, the native peoples of America have no right to resist the English coming to America to trade, that the English will be doing good by the Indians by sending missionaries, and the native peoples have no right to even refuse the missionaries who are going to go there and end cannibalism. Uh, And what he says is they can build forts to defend their trade goods. And if the natives refuse to trade, and this is where it gets very interesting, he says then they could enslave the native people, they can kill them, or they can remove them. And what he's done is he's laid out before the English have even sent the colony to America. He's laid out what becomes Indian removal. He's laid out the right of genocide and the right to enslave native peoples. And he uses, especially the book of Genesis, to justify this. Another reason I discuss it in the book is because. Raleigh will spend much of his career countering Peckham's arguments about the native people, and specifically, for instance, using the Bible and the book of Genesis to counter Peckham's arguments, uh, saying that, for one thing, the English are not the chosen people, which is fascinating in and of itself for an Englishman to say, and that the Bible is not saying these things, that the English have no right to, to deprive heathen of their lands. And um, he goes into uh, detail, in fact, arguing for native rights to their land. And another fascinating thing that came out in Peckham's report is it's clear that he's countering arguments in England at the time that. English people saying we shouldn't go to America because it's the Indians. Just leave them alone. So he's got many reasons to write this. Uh, of course, it's it's full of violence. It's very vividly violent. And uh, 
I, I really think that Raleigh's is sent into action by this in many ways because he spent so much time countering the idea of natives being enslaved, of being deprived of their land, and offering alternatives uh, to the English presence in America than the ones that Peckham provides. Now, how and why did Queen Elizabeth advance and then eventually patent Raleigh's courtier plans for colonization? And what in turn did Raleigh contribute to the quote-unquote cult of Elizabeth? Well, yeah, for one thing, you know, Peckham's bid fails for whatever reason. We don't, I don't know why. And she does turn around and grant Humphrey Gilbert's patent to Raleigh, who had become her favorite. Uh, Raleigh was a courtier. A courtier was somebody who courted the queen. In fact, you know, when we think of courtship today, we think of men and women, but actually it was the relationship of people at court with the crown. It later involved romance. In fact, you could say that begins with Elizabeth uh, because you courted male kings if you were men. Now they had to court a female. And he excelled at this. He was in many ways, the greatest of all courtiers. He knew how to appeal to the queen, how to win her interest, how to keep her interest. And he set the tone teaching other people how to court the queen. And the courtiers played huge roles in colonization. They are generally the ones who are given the privileges to trade overseas, uh, to explore, and to colonize. So you have to have the queen's ear. And a courtier is someone who can get into the inner chamber to talk with the queen, whereas many people uh, are, are not allowed that kind of intimacy. So Raleigh um, helps contribute in a great way to the creation of what we call the cult of Elizabeth. Here she is, the virgin queen. She never married. Uh, her virginity was much uh, praised and valued, almost as if she was um, Jesus's mother. And in fact, there's a lot of arguments that have been made that in Protestant England, that Queen Elizabeth sort of replaces, and that the, there was conscious effort to have her replace the Virgin Mary as sort of the living virgin who has all these great qualities. And Raleigh helped define those qualities. What he did was, especially through poetry, was he turned Elizabeth into a goddess. And then, not just one goddess, but multiple goddesses. In fact, there's one poem within two lines. He had her as four different goddesses. And so he creates these poems and which he sometimes sings, by the way, uh, songs that he puts to music on his lute and shows other people what they have to do. And so other men follow him in writing poems for the queen. And she's just not going to accept any old poem. You got to really work on these things. And poems become political statements even. I mean, she, he writes poems and she'll respond to them, and everybody in court gets to hear these poems so she can make statements about him and about his place at court. So that, that itself is fascinating. When the Earl of Essex comes along as a 
um, youthful, almost competitor for Raleigh, uh, he learns too. Well, I got to write poems if I'm going to appeal to the queen. And, you know, today that might, might sound inane or banal to us, but in the 16th century, poetry was considered by many English to be a form of truth, almost like the highest form of truth. So there was this great respect for poetry. Although love poetry in England, this was something new, um, secular poetry. Poetry had been religious, but it's in Raleigh's time, and he's not the first to do this, that poetry becomes secularized. So poetry plays a large role in his rise, but also too are just words in general. As a courtier, uh, Raleigh was an expert wordsmith. Uh, people said his voice itself bewitched the queen. He had this lovely um, southwestern lull uh, that went along uh, where he didn't say his L's very well, so he called himself uh, Water. So people used to call him Water or Elizabeth, as a nickname, called him Watt. And he excelled at court in verbal sparring. He could insult people. Uh, he was very witty. Uh, and when I say insult people, Insulting was an art in Elizabethan England. I mean, today we use vulgar cuss words when we want to insult somebody. And they did curse here or there, but they created their own curses. Hundreds of them. Uh, you know, and you can find these in the old dictionaries if you're interested. Uh, but it was very important as far as gaining a competitive edge to be able to speak with the queen and speak at court in a way that was considered witty, urbane, cosmopolitan. They had handbooks on how to converse. In fact, one of these handbooks, which was written by an Italian and translated into English, uh, was after the Bible, probably this, the next most popular book in all of England. People used to carry it as a handbook with them. So Raleigh was a master at courting the queen. And he rose high in her estimation, and that raised uh, not just fear and anxiety, but jealousy about this commoner who had gained the queen's uh, attention and got many rewards for his, uh, the attention. She made him very rich and gave him a lot of responsibilities. And of course, she rewarded him with that patent you mentioned to colonize America. And he had five years to do so, and he had a monopoly over it. No one else was allowed to do it. So, following that, uh, please provide a brief sketch of Raleigh's 1580s Roanoke expeditions in, uh, in North America and their medic contours thereof. Ah. Um, Roanoke was his famous colony that he established on the barrier reef of, of North Carolina, the coastal area there, although uh, he will rename it Virginia. Uh, he'll call it Virginia. He didn't call it, of course, North Carolina, named, naming it for the queen and for her virginity. And he, again, historians have often just thought he just blundered into things, but actually he sent three major expeditions there, plus numerous ships with people and, and uh, reinforcements, colonists, for instance, 
and it was very well planned out. He used or or took advantage of very talented people to help him with colonizing, including England's foremost scientist and mathematician, Thomas Harriet, who lived as part of his household. Thomas Harriet will design uh, the single best ship in all of England, uh, the Bark Raleigh. He does that for, for Walter. Eventually, Walter Raleigh sells it to the Queen. And he employs Harriet to figure out how to get his people to America. The English had almost no knowledge of the other side of the ocean, of the Atlantic Ocean. And Raleigh and, and Harriet held classes to teach the navigators and the captains how to get there. Harriet even invents the flowchart uh, to show them uh, you take certain kinds of measurements, and if this happens, you go here. If this happens, you go there, and you go through uh, a system of instruction. So this way, you don't have to understand the theories behind navigation to get there. You just have to follow his instructions. It's fascinating what he did here. He invented instruments to help navigation. Uh, new kinds of mathematics that uh, become famous, including theories on refraction. Uh, so he had a really talented person, and he winds up sending him on the second expedition to America, along with John White the painter. Because what Raleigh needed were people in America who could tell him, what is there? If I'm going to build a colony, what are we going to do there? They, they pretty much knew there were no precious metals, that they weren't going to have gold and silver like the Spanish had gotten in Mexico and Peru. So he sends a first and then the second expedition, find out what can my people do there. And Harriet assesses the landscape and recommends silk. And in fact, silk is often the first thing that's attempted in many of the future English colonies, uh, even in New England and far south as well, Georgia. So silk was one idea, uh, but Harriet's giving all kinds of recommendations. They're looking for plants for health reasons, and they're there uh, on the second expedition for 10 months. Harriet is going to come back to England and write a book. So the first book by an Englishman who had been to America, A Brief and True Report, which becomes the model for John Smith later at Virginia. And sort of becomes a model in many ways for the English in general of the kinds of questions to ask about colonizing, about the landscape, about the native people. So it's, it's sort of a handbook for colonizing. And what he and, and John White also do, White paints the native peoples. So Raleigh can see the native peoples. The, the first group had actually brought back two natives, one Chesey uh, and Manteo, and both of them had learned English from Thomas Harriet. Uh, both of them are sent back with the second expedition when Harriet goes to America. Uh, one Chesey became an enemy of the English. Manteo became their close friend uh, and associate. So that helped because now they had somebody who could translate with the no local native peoples. And anyway, uh, so John White, who was a quite accomplished painter, um, 
winds up going to America with Harriet. He paints the native peoples. They both travel around with Manteo, who takes uh, so they can check out the landscape. Uh, it seems as far north as the Chesapeake Bay in Virginia. They both determine that that's really where the colony should be moved uh, to be resettled. But together, White's paintings. Uh, which are given captions by Harriet. Harriet's captions, by the way, are usually like two-thirds to a full page apiece, so they're very descriptive. Those paintings and the captions plus Harriet's book are all going to be carried to Europe by Theodore de Bry. And Theodore de Bry was a publisher who had been in England and met Raleigh and White and Harriet, uh, convinced them to allow him to borrow all these materials. He goes to Frankfurt and he publishes this, this book on Virginia with all these pictures in it. And it's a landmark publication in many regards. But most importantly, it is the single most important ethnography created of Native Americans in the future United States until the invention of the camera hundreds of years later. Uh, so he creates this in uh, Frankfurt. It's published in four languages. It's sold in book fairs throughout Europe. So it's a smash hit. Uh, when Thomas Jefferson goes, well, before I get to Jefferson, it's it's a, such a success that the DeBry family publishes, um, oh, all of a sudden I forget. I think it's, Ten more volumes on the America series, plus a bunch of abridgments off of the original ten. And then also they create an Asian series as well. So they do this for about 30, 35 years. They're publishing volumes on America. The Virginia volume is the best volume in many ways. And uh, the series itself, Jefferson, when he's in France as a diplomat, will purchase the series and he brings them home and later uses them as part of the establishment of the Library of Congress in the United States. And the pictures that White created are going to be copied and used over and over for centuries. It's so rare to have a book that has such influence for centuries. And why is all this important otherwise? Because part of the purpose is to convince the rest of Europe of the fait accompli that the English have colonized in America and that they're going to be different from the Spanish, where the Spanish, as part of the black legend, have this reputation for conquest, for enslavement, uh, for abuses of the native peoples, often violent and sadistic. Here the English are portraying, having themselves portrayed as humanists, as people who are getting going to get along with the native peoples. Uh, and Raleigh and others are going to push this idea that the natives are blessed people. They, uh, as with John Dee and others uh, throughout Europe who are intellectuals and part of this hermeticist tradition, they look at America and they see these native peoples and they wonder, why is God presenting these people to us at this moment in time? And when they go to America and they see the natives living in such abundance and being such in such great physical condition, they're much larger than the Europeans because they were more physically fit and, and had a better diet. And 
this is, you know, for instance, in Virginia, before disease has struck and um, weakened so many, that it's obvious, according to the hermeticists, to Raleigh and others, that God has blessed the native peoples. It's obvious by how physically well-fit they are, the abundance of their land. It's like a Garden of Eden. And also that, you know, in Raleigh's terms, they, they did not need Christ to be blessed by God. That if you look at their ingenuity, how they plant, how they fish, how they live their lives, it's clear that God has shared the mystery some of the mysteries of the universe with them. And so Raleigh and others, rather than being fearful of Native peoples, want to learn from them. And I like giving as an example, when when Raleigh learns about the existence of gold in South America in what today is Venezuela, Venezuela and Guyana, and he's not ready to go check this out, because he's in the midst of colonizing in Virginia and also in Ireland simultaneously, he sends four boys to live with the natives in Trinidad and on the mainland of South America on the Atlantic side. He's not worried about leaving boys with the native peoples. He wants them to learn the languages, and he respects the natives' religions enough that he figures they'll take care of them. And, you know, I think that's rather remarkable. This was done later by the French for a variety of reasons. Um, also to, to create translators by your own people. Um, but, you know, I think in doing it in this circumstance in the 16th century, it shows you how much faith Raleigh has in the Native peoples, in the Americas, that it's a good idea to leave young men with them. How and why did Raleigh make claims to land parcels in the English, quote-unquote, repeopling of Munster Plantation? And why did he decide to oversee his uh, parcels um, in Myrtle Grove near Yall, Ireland? And what did he contribute to local culture? Yeah, so, you know, as Roanoke is being colonized, the Queen says, Raleigh, you got to go to Ireland and colonize there. and. First, the reason is that after the Desmond Wars, she sees that the Munster province, that's many of the southern uh, counties, has been depopulated owing to, uh, largely owing to famine that the English had created by cutting down the wheat fields and starving people into submission. And she claimed the lands that had been owned by traders uh, because the crown has a right to the lands of traders, which meant not all the lands in the South because some of the Irish had not committed treason. And so she wants Raleigh to go there and to lead the way in repeopling Munster Plantation, sending over colonists uh, to live there. She, by the way, was wrong. There was still a lot more Irish left there than she figured. She thought it was completely depopulated, but it wasn't. And um, she gave out the lands to people she thought 
would be able to raise settlers to go there. People who would be either landowners or workers, because she wants to bar the Irish from working for the English on these lands. Now, why does she want to do this right away? It's because war had broken out with with Spain. And she knows that Spain's going to try to conquer England. It was no secret. And the fear was that England was going to move troops to southern Ireland, where from there it would be easy to cross the Irish Sea into England. So that's why she wanted to keep southern Ireland out of Spanish hands. Uh, and she was right, of course. The Spanish are interested in going into Ireland. But in fact, they'll send the Armada to the English Channel instead. So Raleigh was given an exceptionally large chunk of land. It's 200, I figured, about 37 square miles, um, close to 150,000 acres. And he's supposed to bring over or send over hundreds of settlers uh, onto the land. And so he moves to Ireland. He moves to a place called Yall and has, redoes a house, which you can still see if you go to Yall. It's so funny. It's, it's spelled Y-O-U-G-H-A-L, but they say it Yall like they do in the South, you all. And uh, it's a beautiful little town. And he goes there and he undertakes agricultural experimentation. Uh, it's believed he plants there with Harriet. Harriet goes with him and completes writing his book, A Brief and True Report about Virginia there. So he's got Raleigh there to consult about the book, by the way. And while there, they plant cherries, the famous Afane cherries of Ireland. And they also introduce the potato. And I, I make the case, it's long been rumored that it was Raleigh who introduced the potato. Maybe not the first potatoes, because there were Spanish potatoes uh, possibly introduced. But the potato that they wound up uh, eating in Ireland, that spread throughout Ireland, was introduced apparently on his lands, and I believe it was through his own experimentation. And I, I think the reason the Irish adopt the potato, because a lot of them didn't like like it at first, uh, is that later on they realized that it was a way to resist colonization. Because previously, the English would cut down Irish wheat, which was easy to see the wheat fields, to try to starve the Irish. Well, it's much more difficult to get rid of potato crops. You can't just cut them down. First of all, the potatoes are growing underground, of course, but the potato plants are not tall and easy to see uh, by the cavalry. Uh, and so it's much more difficult to destroy the plants. We do know for a fact that they started, that the plant, uh, the potatoes took off first on Raleigh's lands and that this becomes the heaviest production area in Ireland. And Yall was a very uh, cosmopolitan place. Raleigh becomes mayor twice. Uh, the place was so cosmopolitan, it had had Jewish mayors, which was extremely unusual uh, in, in Western Europe, uh, that it twice had Jewish mayors there. Uh, it had uh, centers of learning. This is especially a religious center. And Raleigh comes in and actually, although he does not become wealthy off of his Irish colonies, 
he does establish uh, different kinds of industries so his successor will take over and just expand on what he does. And eventually his successor becomes the richest man in Ireland, the Earl of Cork. So Raleigh establishes that uh, 42,000 to 150,000 acre plantation in counties Cork and Waterford. Uh, can you talk a little bit about Anglo-Irish and Irish resistance against the plantation and also the tenants? Ah, okay. Um, well, if I'm going to talk about Anglo-Irish and Irish resistance, we of course have to st- start with the Countess of Desmond. Uh, who is a very famous figure in Ireland. There's a lot of paintings of her. All all the paintings are fakes. It was proved in the 19th century they were all fakes. Uh, But she is a hero today in Ireland. Uh, Some people are skeptical uh, that uh, her story is a fairy tale. And I got to tell you, it is a fairy tale. There was no, uh, there was a Countess of Desmond, but not, the one that people have created. And uh, what I do is I tell the story of how the Countess of Desmond, uh, often called Catherine Desmond, was created as a form of resistance by the Irish and Anglo-Irish against Raleigh and colonialism. And um, there were Many of the Anglo-Irish and Irish tried to hold on to their land in various ways. They petitioned to have their land restored by the Queen. Their petitions were dismissed um, out of hand by commissions that were sent to Ireland. The Queen did restore some of the Irish leaders to their land. Um, That was not unusual for her to do that. But more of the common folk were not going to get their lands restored. And one of the the things is that the local Anglo-Irish and Irish leaders, they understood the English legal system. They understood the laws specifically regarding land. Uh, One of my favorite little things that was done by Irish leaders, the great landholders, was that they would sign over their lands to their children, but the documents were only to be pro- uh, produced if they were were convicted of treason. Um, so they always worried about being convicted of treason, and in fact, uh, often they really weren't committing treason, but they were accused by other Irish and Anglo-Irish of committing treason. So. They would be uh, declared traitors, and it was not unusual for the queen to pardon people four and five times of treason. Uh, that's how loosely it was used and how often people uh, were able to get restored. But anyway, it didn't look like this was going to happen again now that she was getting serious about or had gotten serious about colonizing. And... Uh, one of Raleigh's buddies, an Anglo-Irish leader, pulled the wool over his eyes and came up with this scheme to create the Countess of Desmond in order to keep some of the lands from Raleigh. And how did how would this work? Is because he in particular understood the laws regarding lands, and he created this countess who would have dower rights. Women had dower rights to land. 
uh, married women. And so he created this countess, an elderly woman, and said that it was easy to say that her dower rights, uh, you, you couldn't just do away with dower rights because her husband had already died and he hadn't been a traitor. Even though the successor was a traitor, so she would keep the lands until she died. Well, it was claimed she was hundred over a hundred years old. No one actually said which earl she was married to, and these stories were created about her, and they realized they weren't going to get away with it in court. So instead, they took it to Raleigh and said, "You know." Here's the Countess of Desmond, and they introduced an elderly lady for her. She has dower rights to these particular lands, the, land, the lands of Inchquin, and uh, Raleigh believed her. And he was mad. He told everybody at court about this woman. In fact, he claimed that she was 140 years old, ultimately. And it began a series of stories about the Countess of Desmond, who became famous throughout England and then later Ireland. No one in Ireland even knew about her until the English made up the stories. And that's how uh, she became this famous figure to the present day as someone who not only was ancient, and eventually, you know, the stories had legs and kept growing. Um, In the 18th century, it turned out she was 165 years old. And there were stories about her climbing trees every day when she was over 100 and uh, how one time she went to court and, in England and pulled her daughter. She was already 100 and pulled her 80-year-old daughter in a cart to get there. Uh, there are all these stories made up about her, how she walked many miles to y'all every day and um, how she grew a second set of teeth. And then that, that story grew, so she grew a third set of teeth. So, um, but she didn't exist. And I show in in the book why she didn't exist and and how the story is made up. But it was funny because Raleigh's the one who makes her famous. And he's still talking about her in his last book, History of the World. And to this day, if you go in Irish museums, they often have things they say had belonged to the Countess of Desmond. um, Or you see the old pictures. But she didn't exist. And it's, it's just one of many stories of how people resisted colonialism because, because of this, her lands remained in the hands of Anglo-Irish and Irish, who still had to pay rents to her, but they were minimal rents. And Raleigh was waiting for her to die because as soon as she died, he was doubling the rents. So let's talk a little bit about his imprisonments. Can you uh, first uh, describe the circumstances of his first imprisonment and marriage to Beth Throckmorton, as well as the subsequent, subsequent search for El Dorado, or what he referred to as the Empire uh, Guiana? And uh, what were the purposes of the fantasy stories he spun, Hermetic and otherwise? Um, and how did they uh, influence uh, proposals for a so-called benevolent empire? Okay. Um, first, you know, his first imprisonment in the Tower of London. He was imprisoned there, by the way, three times. He's also imprisoned in jail a couple times, two, three times for fighting by the Queen. Um, But imprisonment in the Tower of London was much more serious. And the first time uh, he had gone back to England uh, after Ireland and he had 
fallen in love with one of the Queen's ladies in waiting, that's Throckmorton, and he had gotten her pregnant. And when the Queen found out, she put them both under house arrest. What um, she didn't know, because Bess had taken leave of the Queen while she was pregnant and given birth to a child. And Elizabeth was irate about all this, but what really made her stew was when she found out that Raleigh had married Bess as well. And you know, it was one thing for him to have a dalliance with her lady-in-waiting. It was another thing to actually marry her. The lady-in-waiting herself, Bess, had signed an oath of service to the queen. And she had broken that oath by getting married. Uh, if you're at court, you had to have the queen's permission to marry. So she was thrown into prison in the Tower of London, and Raleigh was also thrown into prison in Tower of London, not for getting pregnant, but for them marrying without the Queen's permission, humiliating her. So Raleigh was in prison there, and it, of course, changed his life. Here he was, the fair-haired boy. He had been given so many perks. He had a monopoly on the issuance of wine licenses in England. He had his monopoly on colonizing in America. He had the Irish lands. He was given far more than anybody else. And he is also captain of the guard, so responsible for the queen's personal safety. He was in charge of tin mining. Uh, He raised supplies for the army. He had so many offices and perks. Uh, and she had given him this great estate, Sherborne. It was his prized estate. Um, she gave him many jewels, but the prized estate. Now, even after she had gotten pre- Bess had gotten pregnant, the queen was mad, but she still arranged that he would get that estate. But after she found out he got married, she changed. So she threw him in the Tower of London. Uh, just to rot, but he did get out. Um, The way he got out was that one of his ships, Raleigh was involved, heavily involved in pirating, um, often by organizing pirating expeditions, and one of his ships made the largest capture, perhaps, that we know of in human history of a ship, value-wise, it was many stories, uh, I forget if it was six or seven story ship coming back from Asia, filled with uh, jewels uh, and all kinds of precious cargo. I remember calculating its cargo in modern dollars at $800 million. It was enough to run the English government for two and a half years if they would use it for that. The problem was the ship was brought in by Raleigh's people And when people found out, they started absconding with the cargo. And Raleigh, since it was uh, his uh, expedition, was the only one who could sort out who was going to get what. And so she let him out of prison with a guard to try and reclaim the lost treasure that they had taken and to uh, sort out what they had. And he will do so. 
and she will deprive him of his share, which was the largest share of the cargo. And as he will say, you know, no monarch has ever been given such a, a valuable gift as this. Because she became, I think her share was 50,000 pounds. And she had invested 2,000 pounds in the expedition. Well, 50,000 pounds, you know, and a, a, um, an artisan only made 40 pounds a year. So 50,000 is a lot of money at the, at the time. Anyway, she was freed. Uh, uh, Best Throckmorton was freed, and so was Raleigh from prison because of this. But they were both barred from court. Uh, Raleigh's wife was never allowed to return to court. Raleigh could still serve. He was expected to serve, but he was not allowed in the queen's presence. He was not allowed to court. Eventually, he was allowed in her presence, too. But um, he could not resume his duties as captain of the guard. He was still captain of the guard, and she did not take away any of the perks of his uh, that she had given him or his offices, not, none of it. Because if she does so, she's going to alienate all his followers, and especially all the people in the southwest of England who are depending on him for patronage. So she doesn't punish him in that way. But he's lost political power. Uh, at, at court, certainly. And as his, some historians have pointed out, he was in line to become essentially the prime minister uh, because of the, the two leading men in England. One had recently died and the other was in his 70s and expected to retire soon. And Raleigh was the top man at the time and he was a great strategist. He had a great mind. It's part of the reason why he was so close with Elizabeth is that he was so intellectually stimulating to her. He was the foremost naval strategist in England of his day. He wrote a lot of pamphlets about a, a range of, of, of geopolitical and strategic things. So he was very valuable, and she couldn't alienate him entirely, but she was the wronged woman, and so she would not let him back into court. And so what does he do? He had been thinking about this place, El Dorado, the lost city of gold, which he had heard about uh, really almost a decade earlier and had sent those four boys to learn the languages of in South America. And he decides, you know what? Now's the time for me to get out of here and go do something fantastic. This was his attempt to get back in the Queen's good graces to find El Dorado, what he called the Empire of Guiana. And so he leads, he raises money, he leads his expedition to South America. Uh, again, he did a lot of planning beforehand. And he arrives in Trinidad, where one of his men on a ship who was scouting out the area was uh, previously attacked by the Spanish there and executed, uh, even though he had been told that uh, they could take on water and they could leave. So when Raleigh goes in there, he exacts revenge against the Spanish that are there. And as he later claims, uh, he kills some of the Spanish also because they had been enslaving the native peoples. And he portrays himself in South America as a liberator of native peoples from enslavement and abuse by those nasty Spanish. So he's constantly telling 
Native peoples as he meets them, and he goes on a 400-mile trek into the interior continent along the Orinoco River, uh, which is north a couple hundred miles of the Amazon and is also a river that uh, floods and overflows. It is a jungle. Uh, even to this day, the area to the south, uh, a lot of the area has, has still not um, been, to use the euphemism we use today, modernized. Uh, it's a very remote area. And he goes 400 miles looking for the Empire of Guyana, and he doesn't get there or find it. And he's got to make his case in England for why they need to go back. <laughs> and so he writes this book about the discovery of the Empire of Guyana, and he's got no proof of the gold. He's got no, no proof of the empire. It, it was a fantasy, and he's got to figure out how to convince English to invest and to go. And so he perpetuates these fantasy stories. He never says he's known these things firsthand. He always says he gets these stories from Indians and from Spanish. Um, but he tells stories about Amazonian warriors, you know, uh, a race of female warriors, which is part of ancient Western history that they existed in various continents. Well, he moves it to South America. In fact, he's not the first because Amazon itself is named for the ancient women warriors. So he tells the t these titillating, fantastic stories. Uh, he tells of another group that doesn't that their head is basically uh, on the top of their chest, that they don't have a neck per, per se, the Wapanoma. Uh, so he, he, he perpetuates these fantastic stories. And scholars and, and non-scholars always, why is he making up these bizarre stories? Again, he's not making them up. Uh, he's just saying, I got them from other people. And I, it took me a long time, but I finally realized what the heck he was doing. And that was he needed to feed the prejudices and tropes that Europeans had about Native peoples. That there were some that thought Natives were monsters. Um, they believed that Native peoples had tails. You often saw Native of America drawn in European pictures with tales uh, and described as monsters, portrayed as monsters. So he fed this to say, see, I, I'm not saying I don't want to go along with this because I'm telling you these stories that I've heard. And then he says, but I did meet this great native leader named Topia Wary. And he uses Topia Wary as his authority on the Empire of Guyana. And why Raleigh couldn't find it or reach it the first time he went, because he was ill-prepared, it was the wrong season, he didn't know how to get there, and only Topia Wary and his people could take them there. So he's got no proof of the empire, he needs people to invest, and so they're not going to want to believe a Native American that here, this empire really does exist. The Spanish have been looking for a generation and still haven't found it. And that's why I think he creates this fan these fantastic stories, stories, or just repeats these fantastic stories, 
And so the readers will go, oh, yeah, he's one of us. He believes this. He believes this. Oh, but look, there are these true stories. There are some Native peoples you can trust. And Raleigh met one of them. And here's the authority for us going to America. And so uh, that becomes, you know, a book he writes. And he comes back, and the queen's not convinced. And he's pushing this. And he, what he does is he writes a fascinating state paper for the queen and court about a benevolent empire. How And it really is articulating in general, not just for Guyana, but for the English in general, how they need to build an empire in the new world. And he wants it to be an empire without conquest. That he argues against Peckham and his his and, and the Spanish model of conquest and that you could remove people, you can kill them and enslave them. Instead, Raleigh argues that A, the English need to be moral about this. They need to work with the native peoples. And that yes, he says, we can make more money through conquest, but we can also fail. And the way to do things is actually to ally with native peoples. And it's a fascinating uh, state paper because even though at the beginning he says, well, we should send missionaries there. That's one reason we need to go to America. Then he, he backtracks. And he says, you know what? The native peoples don't need missionaries. And there's no reason we have to, we can only ally with Christians. And he makes biblical stories for a lot about alliances and comes up with, you know, these people are wonderful already. He says, what we should do is ally with them. They should join Elizabeth's empire as if it's like King Arthur's empire. You know, drawing on the what to the English were real, but to us is, is mostly fairy tales about the Arthurian kingdom where you have the great King Arthur and Lancelot and so on. But King Arthur had fealty, uh, allegiance from lesser kings. He says, so que- the Indians will keep their kings, but they will be in, al- in alliance with us. And why should they be in alliance with us? Because we're going to be friends. And we will work together. And how will we work together? For one, he says, we need to protect the Indians from the Spanish. The Spanish have their guns and cannon and armor. Let's teach the native peoples how to make their own armor so they can defend themselves. Let's teach them how to fight in the European style. We'll even teach them how to create cavalry says they'll send some people over here to England and they will be civilized to English style. They can be converted to Christianity and then we will send English women to marry these men and live in America. And I've never heard this proposed in any colonial scheme that rather than sending men English or European men to marry Native women, Raleigh's proposal send Native women to marry Native men. And this would 
bring peoples together as it had done historically, that you intermarry two groups. Um, so they become allies. So he recommends that. He recommends sending armorers to teach the natives how to create armor. Uh, munitions experts to teach them how to make munitions. And soldiers to teach them how to fight in the European style. And his ultimate goal, he says, is, and then we join together with these native peoples and we root the hated Spanish out of the Americas. We overturn the conquest, in other words, in Mexico, Peru, he names, Florida, and elsewhere. So in other words, he's going to try to create shock troops out of native peoples. But the important point is that he doesn't recommend changing the native peoples. He says the queen should send one advisor to a native group to help them when they're as advisor when they're making about making war and peace with other people. But he's not going to try to change these people. He said if they want to become Christian or when they want to, then they'll ask us for missionaries. Otherwise, if you're going to send missionaries to people, you should expect that they're going to be killed. No one has a right to send missionaries to another group of people and try and change their religion. And in his last book, he goes uh, more in, in, into detail on this, that um, he talks about the morality of heathen, that heathen can be as moral or even more moral than Christians. So it's he's really has moved into what I would call universalism, which is shared by some of these other elite hermeticists, that's their religious philosophy, um, who are opposed to the religious wars, to sectarianism, and, and you know, really are looking at the unification of humanity under God. So anyway, he um, calls for this empire without conquest. Uh, one of his friends even writes a whole poem about the empire of conquest, without conquest, and how the English will, and Indians will be brothers and sisters with one another. And, um, you know, this was his proposal. You know, and I used to think when reading this, well, maybe they thought he was just crazy, you know, at court. But I think actually a lot of them probably really understood what he was trying to say. Uh, it wasn't going to be followed, at least not now, because other things got in the way. And that is the Spanish were going to send another armada to conquer England. And Elizabeth said, basically, forget Guiana. Walter, I need you to go to Spain. And so he goes to Spain uh, with the Earl of Essex and the England's own armada and becomes the hero of Cadiz, uh, conquering that Spanish city. And uh, she sends him elsewhere and she allows him to again become, you know, to practice as cap captain of the guard. He returns to court and so on and uh, rises once against in England. Um, but Guiana, he has to give up on for 20 years because he's too busy in England um, being close to the queen. Uh, there's a lot of domestic political problems, and he's seen as the mediator there uh, doing the queen's work. So can you talk a little bit about uh, the second and third 
re-imprisonments in the Tower of London. I know the second one, he um, engaged in some medical experimentation and published History of the World. So this is all after 1595. And then the third one culminated in his beheading in 1618. Yes. Um, So, yeah, so he was imprisoned three times. Uh, The second one begins in 1603, and that is when, after Elizabeth dies, James I, uh, Scots king, becomes king of England as well. And to make a long story short, Raleigh is convicted on trumped-up charges of treason. Uh, Of course, I go into the treason trial in the book. And he sent the prison back to the Tower of London. Even though he was he was convicted, he was sentenced to die. But one of the conspirators was beheaded, and no one said, God save the king. And that must have been chilling for the king to actually one person says it who who starts the the cry, and no one repeated it. So the king quickly saw that, oh, this was not a good idea, uh, executing the alleged traitor. So Raleigh and another alleged traitor uh, were just imprisoned in the Tower of London and uh, were not executed. Well, when Raleigh gets there, one of Raleigh's many talents, he had many, you know, he's not just a poet, colonizer, soldier, naval captain, and so on. Uh, he was expert in the laboratory. He was expert with metals, and he was expert in creating medicines. Uh, he was he came from a family of alchemists. Uh, Humphrey Gilbert, Adrian Gilbert, the other brothers, they were all involved in working in laboratory. And so Raleigh did as well. And he was as good as any of them. And he had created, uh, back then they created these medicines called cordials. Uh, this were not intended to be alcoholic drinks, by the way. Today we call, cordial means an alcohol. Um, these were medicines. And they created recipes. The word recipe, we think of it today as for food, but actually that was the ingredients for a cordial, for a medicine. And Raleigh experimented, and he created a bunch of cordials, cordials that would be used uh, well into the 20th century uh, in both the United States and England, and uh, perhaps in France too. So King James's wife, Anne, got very sick. I don't know what she was ill with, but she claimed none of her many physicians could heal her. And she turned to a cordial produced by the king's prisoner, Sir Walter Raleigh. And she said it healed her. So she became a protector of Raleigh somewhat and had enough influence as queen to convince the king to allow Raleigh to have a laboratory in the Tower of London. And to have 24-hour access to the laboratory. So the king's prisoner, you know, it wasn't like today either, by the way. Um, 
back in this time, if you were allowed to have servants, if you were an elite, you could have servants in prison with you. You could have visitors. The higher you were, the more visitors and servants you could have. So when we say Raleigh was in prison, he had a couple of rooms. He had an apartment. You can still see them today in the Tower of London. He had servants there. Uh, basically, you had to provide your own food back then. And in fact, in the tower, they had people selling food, and that continued for centuries. Uh, people selling food, they'd come in every day. Um, and so he's in the tower, he has this 24-hour access, and he's making cordials. People come from different parts of the country, of, the, of Europe, and they are at court, and they hear about Raleigh, and they want cordials for their illnesses. Raleigh was extremely interested in illness. In sickness, like many people were in Europe who were interested in America because they thought, one, that the Indians in America had plenty of treatments for illness that they needed, that Europe needed to know about. And plus, they wanted to know about the plants, the medicines that the Indians were creating. And if you go to a place like the British Library, which is sort of their um, Library of Congress, Probably the largest collection of, of letters, private letters, from colonial America to England that's collected there have to do with medicine, or at least discuss medicine to some extent, because everybody wants to know about healing. Um, just like today we have with, you know, people taking all kinds of uh, pharmaceuticals or naturopathic medicines. People back then, too, you know, were looking for uh, not just medicines even, but panaceas, cure-alls. And Raleigh created a great cure-all. We call it Raleigh's Cordial. We have many recipes of it. There was an entire book written about it in the 17th century by a Frenchman who served King Charles II in England. Uh, th again, this was his most famous cordial. It was thought to cure just about everything. And so in the book, I go into uh, the cordial and what it – sort of how the cordial and what America means in, in English minds about how America could, you know, solve problems of healing and allow people to live much longer lives. So Raleigh's in prison. He becomes famous for his medicine. And – he also is introduced to the prince, Prince Henry, the king's eldest son. The queen brought him to prison, and Raleigh sort of becomes a mentor for the prince, uh, even convinces him not to marry the person the king had chosen for him to marry. And um, so he establishes a relationship with the prince and writes many tracts for him as well. And uh, one of the things he decides to do is to write a history of the world. It is a book that uh, it's essentially 1,500 pages. It's only part one. He doesn't get to parts two or three. It only goes up to the time of Christ, basically. And with all that he's done, well, I won't go into too much detail on this, but, but the prince is going to is convince the king to let him out of prison which doesn't work out. But Raleigh does publish the book, and it becomes an extremely important history in England. It is 
Um, by all accounts, the most popular history written in the 17th century by an Englishman. It goes through many editions and abridgments. It remains popular, very popular in the 18th century as well. And this, as well as a lot of Raleigh's other um, pamphlets that he writes, makes him one of the best read writers in England. And in fact, I'd say that in the early years, you know, the first half of the 17th century, he was the best read English writer. Uh, he's even better read than Shakespeare, uh, but certainly Shakespeare's uh, writings take off in the second half of the 17th century. So Raleigh becomes this national hero, and people are reading his history of the world. And they're, you know, they're getting doses. A lot of it is his philosophy about life, about tolerance. It's even about diversity, and he uses the term, uh, making a biblical argument for diversity in all things. And uh, he finally earns his way out of prison. After writing the history of the world, um, he doesn't get out right away, but he, <laughs> the way he gets out is he convinces the king that he really does know where El Dorado is. And if the king was greatly in debt, he said, you let me out of here. And he tried actually four or five times, but the last time it worked. You let me out of here, I'll make you the richest man in Christendom. And so Raleigh is released. And he's by then this great national hero, you know, the last of Elizabeth's great knights. He was much beloved. He was considered wronged for what had happened to him with his treason uh, trial was considered folly. It was obviously um, trumped up charges and conviction. And he's allowed out to go find El Dorado, uh, which he fails at. And he ends back in the Tower of London for his third imprisonment. So uh, there he is uh, beheaded in 1618. Um, I have uh, one final question. What projects are you working on next? Is there anything you can disclose with us, with us to us, excuse me, at this time? Sure. Um, you know, I've, li- I've written a lot about Native America over the years. You know, I wrote a book, The Indian Slave Trade. Um, I've written about the frontier, relations between Native Americans, African Americans, and Euro-Americans. And I'm kind of moving my analysis now. I've always gone backwards from the 18th century to the 17th to the 16th. And now I'm moving to the late 18th and into the 19th century. And I'm getting out of the Atlantic world and moving to the Pacific. And I'm looking at the natives who live in Alaska and British Columbia and Washington State, along the coast, we often call them the Northwest Coastal Peoples. Many of them are the ones who build and and built totem poles. And I'm looking at their history and art and how they use their art and their stories as sort of part of their response to colonialism. So it's some of the same themes I've been looking at through my career. Native peoples and their response to colonialism, but here I'm I'm shipping shifting to the other ocean and seeing if I could learn things by, you know, lo- looking at the Pacific and looking at a lot of the stories in the art. 
Well, we hope you we hope you remember the New Books Network for that project. I certainly will. I so much enjoy uh, talking with you, Ryan, uh, giving me this opportunity uh, to share about the book. You know, you, you work on these books for years, and the one thing you want to do is you want to share them. You want to share what you found, uh, and you hope you get readers. Totally. So the book is Walter Raleigh, Architect of Empire, published uh, late last year by Basic Books. Professor is Alan Galay. This is Ryan Tripp on behalf of Professor Galay, signing off from New Books in History, a channel on New Books Network. Please tune in next time. Thank you again, Ryan.